When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Many years ago, on a trip to New Delhi, I was struck by an official memorial to Supas Chandra Bose, the wartime leader of the Indian National Army, the Japan-affiliated force of Indians who fought against the British during the Second World War. India, of course, has a more complex view of the fight against Japan and other countries involved in the Second World War, with these soldiers being contentious, debated, and at times celebrated. Today, I'm joined by Tanvi Shivastavev, translator of The War Diary of Ashasan, from Tokyo to Nataji's Indian National Army, a unique historical document showing the life of Lieutenant Bharati Ashasahi Chowdhury, a 17-year-old Indian girl raised in Japan who signs up to fight the British in 1943. While she never makes it quite while she never quite makes it to the front lines, her story, as translated by her eventual granddaughter-in-law, Tanvi, discusses the war's event since from a different vantage point. Tanvi also writes fiction and was a member of the 2021 cohort of the Right Beyond Borders program funded by the British Council. She's been published in journals like Kitab, Gulmohar Quarterly, New Anthology of Asian Writing, and The Reading Hour. So, Tanvi, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and talking about the, the war diary of, of Ashasan. Yeah, I, I probably have to ask this question first. Um, why were a family of, of Indian independence activists, why were they living in Japan in the first place? Thank you so much for having me, Gordon. Sorry, 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 Nicholas. Can I just restart? Sorry. Oh, yes, thank yes, you, you can. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Nicholas. Um, it's it's a really interesting question, and it's actually a question that I asked when when I met Asha San's grandson, who I would eventually marry. I was like, "What are your grandparents, great grandparents? What did they do in Japan? Why did they land up there?" And um, the story begins with Asha San's parents, um, her father, Anand Mohan Sahai, and her mother, Sati Sahai. Um, I'll just start with the father first. Um, so Anand Mohan Sahai was from Bihar, um, and he was a member of a very large family um, that were not very well off financially. Um, they came from a small village called Purani Sarai near Bahagalpur. Um, and he was the eldest son, and there was this burden on him to do something for the family. Um, So he was not an activist uh, initially, although he had a small brush with uh, Bengali revolutionaries when he was a schoolboy. So if if we just look at the geography, um, Bengal and Bihar are very close by. 
And uh, Bengal was this hotbed of revolutionaries at the time. So we're talking about early 1910, 1920 or so. Um, and he had an uncle who knew someone in the Anushilan Samiti, which was this underground secret society, um, very interesting group um, of youth um, who aimed to actually overthrow the British government, um, both by, by uh, publishing newspapers and pamphlets advocating revolution, but at the same time, they wanted to terrorize the government by manufacturing bombs, importing arms, ammunition, um, and even planning assassinations. Um, so Raj Bihari Bose, who we will encounter later, um, he was a member of the Anushilan Samiti, and he um, attempted to assassinate the Viceroy, the British Viceroy, Lord Harding, in 1912. Um, so, so a revolutionary of this group came to Bhagalpur, came to Anand Monsai's village when he was a young boy, um, and he hid for a while. Anand Monsai met him, interacted with him briefly, um, but did not get involved in the independence movement at this stage. Instead, he actually moved to Patna, um, the capital of Bihar at the moment, and he um, decided to join um, Temple Medical School, which is it was a medical college. And he wanted to really support his family. But um, this is around 1920, 21. Um, Jalyan massacre had just happened. And it's hard for us 100, 100 years later to really understand the impact of the massacre. Um, but India had changed. Um, India was ready for a mass movement. Gandhi was involved. He had just launched his non-cooperation movement and he landed up in Patna. So if any of you know the geography of Patna, you'll know that um, Temple, Temple Medical College, which is now known as Patna Medical School, is very, very close to Patna Lawns or Gandhi Medan. Um, so Gandhi arrived there and he gave this speech to this massive audience, um, asking students, asking lawyers, asking officers, to give up their jobs, to give up their studies, join the non-cooperation movement, get involved, let's get rid of the British. Um, and Anand Sai heard this and he said, yes, um, very, very inspired. He um, did debate the question a lot. Can we attain independence through non-cooperation? Can we attain independence by non-violent means? Uh, but after interacting with leaders like Dr. Rajendra Prasad, who later became the first president of India, um, he decided to join the movement. So he gave up his medical studies um, and his family had taken a loan for him to be able to study. Um, so it was quite a big sacrifice. And uh, he became Dr. Rajendra Prasad's personal secretary at the time. Um, and everything was sort of going well. The movement was making strides. When an incident happened in um, a small town called Chori Chora, um, and this is in the north in what is now UP, um, and the, the movement, the non-cooperation movement, actually turned violent. So in this incident, um, several protesters, several British police officers were killed. And Gandhi said that, no, this cannot go on. And he single-handedly called off the movement. And the impact of that was felt throughout the country. Um, people like Anand Mohan Sai suddenly had nothing to do. Um, leaders who he was working with were arrested um, he didn't have his medical studies to go back to, and he was left in this sort of no man's land. Um, and so that was in 1922, early 1922. And towards the end of 1922, the Congress annual session was actually held in Gaya, in Bihar. 
and Anand Mohan Sahai was um, the person who was responsible for organizing it on the ground. So Dr. Rajendra Prasad and Anand Mohan Sahai worked very closely to make sure that this, um, this, this Congress session was a success. And it was a really interesting meeting because he met actually two people who would change his life. Um, so the first person he met was um, Subhash Chandra Bose. So Subhash Chandra Bose was attending the session as a very young man. He was the personal secretary of Chitranjan Das, who was this notable Bengali leader of the Congress. And um, Chitranjan Das's niece, Sati Sen Sahai, or later Sahai, she also was at the session. Um, and Sati Sen, Asha San's mother, um, was there singing Bande Matram. And she was also very active in the non-cooperation movement. She was in Calcutta, marching along the streets. Her mother, um, Basanti Devi, was arrested. Um, and when when um, Anand Mohan Sahai met both of these people, his life changed. Um, he, he sort of knew at that moment that Netaji, um, Subhash Chandra Bose, was someone he's going to work with very closely. And he also knew that um, Sadi Sen is someone he would marry eventually. Um, but to cut a long story short, um, Anand Mohan Sahai at that point didn't really know what to do. So he wanted to, uh, he thought about going abroad. He thought about, okay, maybe I should join the Gadar movement. Um, at least it feels like you can do something if you're outside India. Um, so he, he tried to get a passport to go to the US, but he couldn't get a visa. Um, so, so someone he knew uh, recommended that, why don't you go to Japan? And you can try to get a passport from Japan to go to the US. Um, and so he said, okay, sure. So he got a passport to the to Japan. And in 1923, he was about to sail off when he got a letter from Sati Sen um, saying, hey, why don't you meet me in Shantiniketan on your way to Calcutta? Um, I know someone who knows someone in Japan and I can give you a letter of introduction. Um, so he met her and um, in my head, it's this magical love story. <laughs> Um, so he met her, they exchanged notes, etc. And they would exchange letters once Anand Mohan Sahai sailed off to Japan. And um, it was quite unusual for someone like Sati, who was young in her early 20s, um, not to not get married. Um, so she waited a full four years for Anand Mohan Sahai to return to India in 1927. And when he returned, they got, they got married and then they sailed back to Japan. Um. So eventually, you know, they, they, they have a daughter. Well, they have several children, um, one of whom is Asha, um, who grows up in Japan and then eventually uh, decides to join the Indian National Army in 1943. Um, how much of, I mean, what actually drove her to, to make that decision to, to, to sign up for the, well, I, I guess to sign up with the INA for, for the fight? That's an interesting question. And honestly, I can only guess. Um, I would say that definitely her mother was a big influence. Um, so I've actually uh, read her mother's diaries of the time. And her mother is so patriotic. Every every song that she writes in her diary, every note is about freeing India, is about the atrocities that the British have done on India. And this is even 20 years after when they've been in Japan for 20 years. Um, so so the, clearly, like, her mother's influence, um, studying under Rabindranath Tagore in Shantiniketan, marching in the streets of Calcutta, definitely had played a large role. And to see, I think, women empowered. So it was very rare in that time to see women um, actually marching on the streets. 
And I think that's one of the great things that happened in Bengal. You saw the first uh, females in the national movement. Um, so she would have been definitely influenced by her mother, her grandmother, her father. In his absence, he was always an activist. Even though he came to Japan, he um, initially had to um, make ends meet somehow. So he was teaching English. He was he became a trader. Not very good at any of this, but he was very good at um, awakening the Indians in Japan at that time. Um, so so Japan. Um, for Indians was mostly a place where merchants settled down. Um, there wasn't much of a national movement. Um, so he he started this magazine called Voice of India. Um, he started a branch of the Indian National Congress in Japan. Um, and I think as a family, including her uncle, Satyadev Sahai, who's also in the book, despite being in Japan, it was never um, about enriching oneself. It was, how can we give back to India? Um, and I would definitely say even even the the ultra nationalism in the schools of the time. Um, so so Asha San, despite being so Indian, did go through a very traditional Japanese education. And it's really interesting. I, I actually asked her last year, um, why how 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 did you choose um, how did your parents choose such a school, a traditional Japanese school? Why did they not send you to an international school? And she um, said that initially for about six months, they had put her into an international school, but they didn't like the values and the ethos of the school. Um, and they felt that they needed to integrate into Japanese society as much as possible, learn the language, the dress. They ate like Japanese, ordinary Japanese people. And it was really interesting. But even in the war, they were eligible for extra rations um, because they were foreign citizens, but they refused. Um, and they really believed in this idea of one Asia. Um, and Asia against imperialism. So I think the entire environment must have influenced her. And I think I think one of the great things is that her mother encouraged her. It was never that her mother said, no, stay back. It was never that her father said, you're a girl, you should stay at home. Um, the fact that Netaji came up with the Rani of Jhansi Regiment, the fact that people like the Sahai said, yes, no matter your gender, you should go fight. Um, it, it, it's it's quite amazing. Um, you, you know, we, we talked a lot, or you mentioned kind of the the Indian patriotism and the Indian kind of nationalism that that drove um, Asha's view of things. Um, but I do also want to ask whether Japan Japanese narratives and I'll be frank, kind of Japanese propaganda about things also affected the way she thought. And there's a particular example in, in her diary that, that, that struck me, which is when she's in Taiwan, um, she meets a Chinese family who is, I think, quite wary and nervous of her when she speaks Japanese, but then approaches her when she speaks Chinese, at which point Asha says, this is proof of the Chinese legacy of 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 barbarity which shows that they were scared of chinese authority and i was like huh okay <laughs> um and i mean i mean look it's she grew up in in imperial japan she's 17 this isn't really it's not quite judgment but but, but it does show me kind of how much of japanese narratives and you know japanese propaganda kind of affected how she thought about the world um yeah so it's really interesting because even if you ask her today she will still say that Japanese people can do no wrong. The nation can do no wrong. And she's not very fond of China or Korea. Um, so I think definitely 
the propaganda at that time has influenced her and the fact that it continues to date. She's 95 years old, but her beliefs have not changed. Um, but I think it's fine as well. She's young, isn't, isn't youth about ideals, isn't youth about putting your country, your uh, leaders first. Um, and I think that's how it was for her in that time. Um, it feels like you were supposed to glorify Netaji. And, and that does come across in the book as well. Uh, both both um, the Japanese narrative of disliking other countries, of um, thinking of Japan as superior. And it's really interesting because throughout, there is no conflict between her in terms of India versus Japan. Um, they unite in her head, um, but but somehow she manages to continue with that thought, continue. Um, even, even I, sorry, I'm just jumping back a bit. There is one section where she doesn't um, think that Indians are great fighters because she has been so influenced by Japanese um, propaganda, by, the, by the, the heroes she sees around her. Um, so when she actually meets uh, members of the INA for the first time, she is pleasantly surprised. Um, so so I, I would definitely say that um, this is a biased narrative. It is her perspective thoroughly and take it with a pinch of salt. Um, so Asha eventually kind of makes it as far as, um, as I believe Thailand, um, but the war ends before she gets to see combat. Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, what, what, what is she doing in Thailand? What's her training like? And then what happens when the war, I think very quickly comes to an end? Yeah. So it's, um, interesting as well, because, um, Thailand was right, um, where their training camp was located and, um, Generally, it was where they would start off um, and they would march from Bangkok to Burma. And she actually did march towards Burma, um, but she did not see combat, as you, you're saying. Um, so so just jumping back again a bit, um, I think what's interesting for her is that her journey just took so long to reach the Rani of Jhasi trading camp. Um, so, so with her father during the war, it was just very hard to get passage from Japan to Thailand. And that's what makes the story quite interesting is how she's jumping, taking different uh, different flights, hopping across countries. And then when she actually reaches Thailand, um, she goes and undergoes very rapid training. Um, so, so because of her education and her background, she is given officer training. Um, and um, she does say herself that um, it's similar to what she's undergone in Japanese schools. She's learned how to march. She's... Um, a little coy, so she has to learn how to give orders. Um, they are trained in in ammunition. They learn how to use a machine gun, a bayonet. Um, one very interesting part of the story, which she loves to narrate to everyone, um, even today, is how they make effigies of Churchill and Roosevelt, and they are taught how to use a bayonet on these effigies. Um, they're given guerrilla training, and it's it's all condensed into this one month where um, she learns how to drive a truck, um, a, a scooter or a cycle or something as well. Um, so so it's this very condensed training and um, she's raring to go, they're raring to go, but the reverses have already happened. Um, the Indian National Army is not doing well. Um, the, 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 the terrain is very, very difficult for them. They're not getting the supplies, they're not getting the ammunition as promised. Um, there are a lot of deserters also, which which the book actually doesn't talk about. So again, she, she does, um, 
have a jaded sort of perspective there. Um, so before we know it, and before she can actually get into the war, into the combat, um, the atom bombs fall. And I think that's something which is um, just devastating for her uh, on two levels. The first level is obviously that um, if Japan surrenders, that means the INA has to surrender. And secondly, the bombs have fallen on Japan and she assumes it has to be Tokyo. It has to be where her parents, her mother still is, where her sisters and her brothers still are. Um, so so it's very, very devastating. And I think that's, I, I, I always try to put myself into her feet at that moment, just to be away from everyone. You don't know where your father is. You assume that your parents, your, your mother, your siblings are not alive and you're stranded in Thailand away, miles and miles away from everyone. And you're just a girl, you're 17. Um, so, so I, I think the, the diary itself does voice the anxieties of that young girl, um, and how she overcomes such, such adversity at a young age. Um, and I think what, what she always says, and even today she says that she did not actually see combat the way some other members of the Rani of Jassi regiment did. And she feels that maybe she should have done more. She could have done more. And there is that sense of regret, um, but as her father and her brother also said um, later in the book, that just like by holding a gun and shooting is not the only way of helping the country. Um, and I think her contribution after the war, when she returned to India, is as important as um, during the war. You know, I I, I was wondering about um, about how Asha and I guess maybe her contemporaries in the Indian National Army and just, I guess, maybe amongst the broader, um, I guess, community of Indian exiles kind of think about the end of the war. And I, and I admit I'm, I'm, I'm purely, I am speculating here. Um, but I guess unlike Japan, which was defeated um, and very clearly lost, um, the Indian National Army, I guess, lost because their, their patron, their sponsor, their protector lost. And so they didn't lose directly. And whether or not that may have changed how they felt about the end of the war and losing the war. I mean, Asha definitely mentioned, writes in the diary that, that there were several points where she's quite um, uh, assertive towards, towards member, you know, U.S. soldiers that, that have come to occupy these countries after the war ends. Um, I, I guess kind of, kind of how, how, how did the nature of the, the Indian National Army's defeat kind of affect how people like Asha saw the end of the war? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so after the war ended, um, she was under arrest. She was under camp arrest. Um, and, the, and the U.S. soldiers would visit. They would um, take their belongings. They would um, ask them not to be in uniform, take their guns. Um, but there was definitely this aggression towards um, the British and the U.S., the occupied armies. Um but I don't, uh, I don't think they ever saw it as a loss. Um, I think the loss of Netaji is what they really, really felt. Um, the loss of the INA actually was when they returned to India was the exact opposite. So, so because of um, the INA trials that happened in in November, December of 1945, um, India, mainland India, had no idea what the INA had been up to. Um, they had no idea that Netaji was fighting this war. They had no idea that so many soldiers had gathered. This this independent army had been created. Um, and this information started trickling in only after the end of the war. And once once uh, the British actually put 
um, Segal and Dylan and Nawaz Khan on trial, um, it actually galvanized the movement a lot. And I think that's something that's quite magical. And actually, um, I've done a bit of research around this. And if you go through newspaper articles and clippings of the time, you do see how this uh, trial actually backfired for the British. Um, firstly, they headed, held it at the Red Fort, um, where uh, Nitaji and and all all the songs of the Ainya just ask everyone, "Let's go to Delhi, Chalo Delhi." They say that we're going to we're going to plant the flag, the tricolored flag, on Red Fort. So to do a trial at Red Fort uh, suddenly galvanized the nation to say that, "Hey, what are you doing? These are our heroes. How can you put them up on trial?" And um, the the Congress also members got together. They formed the INE Defense Committee, um, and they represented these members of the INE. And what actually what happened is a lot of people don't really talk about it, but it had a huge impact on creating um, mutinies across the country. So the RIN, the Royal Indian Navy mutiny happened in Bombay. It spread across the country, and the entire there was the entire there was a lot of foment in India directly attributable to the INA trials, um, to the tours people like Asha and her father and her uncle did across the country, spreading the message of the INA. So despite losing the actual war, and they honestly weren't the best force around, I don't think they were the strongest force around, but just the idea that um, the INA exists, the idea that the Azad Hind government exists is what galvanized India at the time. And... Um, Despite what the British has probably wanted or intended, um, the INA actually really, really, I believe, contributed to the independence of India. Um, the, the British Indian Army suddenly was in flux. Um, you, because of the mutinies, you didn't know whether you could trust um, the, the Royal Indian Navy or not. Um, so, so despite losing the war, definitely, I think the INA contributed to the independence of India. So through circumventious means, I suppose we did reach where we did. Um, I want to maybe kind of go back in the back in the timeline a bit, um, which is going to talk about the the experience of the rest of Asha's family after um, after the war ends. Um, you know, the the experience of her family back in Japan, or the experience of of her father, who was. I mean, clearly a much more prominent figure in the organization than than she was. Um, what happens to the rest of her family um, once, I guess, once the Second World War is over? Um, so, so in Japan, we had her mother was still there, and her mother was not keeping good health. Um, I've actually found files in the in the Indian archives which um, show how occupied army um, soldiers and doctors would visit at the request of the Indian Congress, visit her and check up on her. Um, And she had, I think she was suffering from arthritis, very debilitating, um, and Tokyo winters were not helping her. And despite her physical condition, she was taking care not only of her three children, um, so Asha's two sisters and younger brother, but uh, they were also members of um, the Indian National Army who were sent to Japan um, for training, for officer training. So they were called the Tokyo Boys. They were sent there and um, they were joined the, I think, the Imperial Army of Japan and the Imperial Air Force. And um, when the war ended, they were suddenly stranded. They had nowhere to go. Um, and they actually had no roof over their head. So her mother, Sati, actually took several of them into her own home. 
Um, they actually built barracks at the back. Um, they fed them, they clothed them, they took care of them for a very long time. Um, and she had obviously no stable income as well. Her, her husband would send money whenever possible. Um, but what she actually ended up doing is um, she she started a small store selling bartering items. Um, she would take her old saris and she would cut them, make them into shirts, into neckties. And um, last year, I actually visited um, Asha San's younger sister, youngest sister, baby. And she actually had a clipping off of the paper, which um, her mother used to trace the designs of the necktie. And she showed me that. Um, so, so it was quite amazing to see um, how difficult the circumstances were, yet they continued. And um, I think most of Japan as well, I think through the war, there was just such shortage. And it's hard for us to imagine today, um, it's like even surviving in the, the ways they did. But um, they managed, and they managed to do it happily, taking in guests. Um, another interesting moment was um, when Habibur Rahman, who was also a member of the INA, who was on the same flight as Netaji when it crashed, and he suffered burns on his hands, um, he brought the ashes of Netaji to their home in Tokyo. Um, and um, Asha San still remembers those stories that her mother told her, that her sisters have told her of how um, the ashes were placed in the living room, how they were taken to Renkuji Temple. Um, and it was all a very, very solemn and difficult time, but they somehow survived it. And um, they returned to India only a month before independence. So in July, 1947, um, they boarded a, a ship from Japan and I think they landed near Chennai. Um, so um, that chapter, the Japanese chapter sort of closed with that and I th for me, I think that's that's one of the most poignant parts of the book is just the, the cultural shock the entire family must have had in terms of returning to India um, once once the war ended. Uh, jumping to Anand Mohan Sahai, so he was, um, after the end of the war, he was in Saigon. And um, I think they were trying to make um, some connections with Russia trying to see if the movement could go on. But after the death of Netaji, they knew that there was nothing that could be done. Um, and he was then sent to Singapore with other prominent leaders um, of the Azad Hind government. And he was under arrest for several months. And um, because of the INA trials, because of the work the Congress had done, they were actually released because of the public pressure that was put on them. And I think Nehru visited Mount Patton around March 1947, and he also stopped by at Pearl Hill Prison. And a few weeks later, he was released from prison. And that's when um, Asha and Anand Mohan Sahai were repatriated. Um, her uncle, Satyadev Sahai, was also under arrest. He was also released. But they were not allowed to return to India. And again, the British archives have these files um, from the British intelligence. Um, and it says very clearly that they, they question whether the entire family, Anand Mohan Sahai, Asha Sahai, Satyadev Sahai, should be allowed to return to India. Because they knew the moment that they would land on Indian soil, they would cause ferment. They would spread the message of the INA, which is exactly what happened. They went on these epic tours across the country. Um, giving speeches, singing the songs. And again, I think that is what contributed to the freedom of India. 
so I, I, I do, I do want to talk about what happens to, um, to Asha and the rest of the family kind of after the diary ends in 1947. But before I ask that, you know, in, in terms of today's conversation in India, kind of what, what place does this story, the Indian National Army story, kind of, how is that talked about in India today? Um, I mean, is it, is it, is it still this, this kind of, complicated issue complex issue is it are these are these soldiers still seen as freedom fighters are they seen as something else kind of how is how is this group talked about in india today so i think if you ask different people you'll get different views um i have an uncle who was in the indian army and his father actually fought against the ina so for them um I think it's something very hard. It's it's very difficult for them to come to terms with that these members of the INA are heroes. Um, and you would see that members of the INA did not return into the Indian army once they returned to India. Um, but by and large, in the last decade or two, definitely members of the INA, the Azad government, are being venerated, are being remembered. Um, they are being treated as heroes. And... Um, I don't know if you know about um, the entire conspiracies as well. So whether Netaji is alive or not, um, that's a debate that's gone on for the last 50, 60 years. And obviously he's no longer alive, but um, the files are still open. Um, there, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about what actually happened to Netaji, um, whether or not there was some treasure involved, which has gone missing. Um, so I think that kind of obscured Netaji's legacy, to be honest. Um, Today, you mentioned at the beginning, um, you saw Nitaji's statue um, where King George V once stood in, in Delhi. Um, and the current government is um, putting Nitaji on a pedestal. And But I don't think it's for the right reasons. They see him as a militant leader. Um, but Nitaji would never stand for the India that exists today. Nitaji was such a secular man. He was someone who would not... Um, differentiate between any religion, between any caste, between any creed. And he made it a point for um, Hindus, Muslims, Christians to be together. For example, there's a story of how he would he refused to go to a temple in Singapore because only Hindus were allowed in the temple. And when he actually did go in, he went with his Muslim and Christian colleague. Um, so, so the INA, from a, in a political perspective, is... Um, being put on a pedestal, but I feel like that's more because it's a counter-narrative to the contribution of the Congress over the last 60, 70 years. Um, so I feel that a lot of people who actually have read Nitaji's words, who have studied Nitaji, will understand his relevance today, but the way he's being remembered in the last decade is actually a disservice to him. So I guess kind of my, my my last question today, at least about 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 Asha is, um, you know, what happens to her after after the diary ends? The diary ends in, in nineteen forty seven, um, but how does her life develop? Um, I guess after that point. So she returns to India in nineteen forty six, and in nineteen forty seven, um, when India gains independence. 
um, I actually asked her, like, how did she feel? How did they celebrate? Where were they? Um, and she said that her parents, both Anand Monsai and Satif Sahai, were so heartbroken that they did not take part in any celebrations. Um, the partition of India really, really um, left them very distraught. Um, but um, so, so 1947 is when she was still in Patna, and she actually got married quite in quite soon after. So the book does mention her husband in passing. Um, uh, there are, I think, two lines um, of her husband, uh, Dr. L.P. Chaudhary. And um, she gets married in 1949, and she sort of puts her husband on center stage. She lives the life of a wife. Um, he's a doctor in a small town. Um, they live this life where she goes to clubs in the evening. She plays cards. She enjoys herself, but she is not remembered as a member of the Rani and Chassi Regiment of the INA. Um, and then about, about I'd say, almost like 20 years later is when she uh, goes to her father's house and finishes her bachelor's. And uh, this is the time when she finds her diary in Japanese and she translates it into, into Hindi. So um, her Hindi professor also helps her a bit because when she returned to India, she could barely speak any Hindi. So it's, I think, just been a decade or so of adjusting, of learning Indian culture, the language. Um, and in 1973 is when this diary is first published in India in Dharmyug magazine in a serialized manner, so over 10, 12 weeks. Um, and it's quite amazing because people still today, they come to me saying that they remember reading about this diary 50 years ago. They remember it very clearly. Um, and then still, uh, she was not remembered for her role by the government or anything by, at that point. Um, and there was uh, some hardship in her life. Um, she lost her son, who was a doctor in the Indian Army, um, due to an accident in 1978, and the diary is actually dedicated to him. And um, she lost her mother and then her uncle and her husband as well in very quick succession, I think, in a span of five, six years. Um, so severe hardship, but she somehow managed to get over it. Um, even today, if you meet her, she's got this lovely sense of humor. Um, she does uh, spend a lot of time in Bodh Gaya. She volunteers at this Japanese um, shrine Um and then I, th I would say that till about 2000 or so, um, she is not really remembered as a member of the Rani of Jhasi Regiment. Um, in 2010, she was invited back to Japan for the first time um, by her college, by Showa Women's University as the chief guest. And uh, that's when she returns to her old house. It's not there anymore, but she sees the neighborhood. And I think that must have been such a magical moment in her head to return 60 years later. Um, and it's a, really only in the past decade or so is that um, she's got some recognition. Um, during Nitaji's 125th anniversary, she was invited uh, to Calcutta to be a part of the ceremony. Um, then I, I actually met her in 2013, and that's when I found the diary, and that's when I started asking everyone um, what they, why, why was, why was Asha-san in Japan? Um, and uh, just, just how, how I got into it, it was quite accidental. Um, as, as you know, I was, I was writing fiction, but I was really struggling with it. Um, and I read this article by Jumpala Heri, who, who said that if, if you want to improve your craft of writing, try your hand at translation. And um, Asha-san's diary was there with me. It was it had been republished by my father-in-law. 
um, and he had given us a copy for our wedding. Um, so I tried my hand at it, and it was just such a magical experience. So I think that's a great place to end your interview with Tanvi Shivastav, uh, translator of the War Diary of Ashasan from Tokyo to Nataji's Indian National Army. Tanvi, I actually have two final questions for you, uh, which are, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the interview, Nicholas. It's been such a pleasure. Um, this book, unfortunately, is only available in, in the Indian subcontinent at the moment. Uh, we are trying to find publishers in the US and UK. So if anyone is interested, please reach out. Um, at, at the moment, what I'm working on, I'm actually working on a couple of projects. Uh, one is a novel. So I've just finished the first draft um, over the weekend. So I've been celebrating that. Um, and the second is actually a book on Anand Mohan Sahai, on Sati Sahai. So uh, there's a lot of um, information about them that hasn't been published ever. Um, so my father-in-law actually published Anand Mohan Sahai's memoir, his autobiography, um, in 2009 um, by compiling all the notes he had in his house. Um, but the, the key chapters on what happened from 1941 to 1945 are missing from that. So I am looking at uh, going back into that story and understanding what made Anand Mohan Sahai the man he became. How did Sati Sahai lead this incredible life in Japan? This woman who was alone pretty much most of the time, um, suffering bad health, but yet managed to do such incredible things. So I am looking at writing something around both of them. Um, and I'm working on some other translation projects as well. I'm finding um, women writers of the 1930s, 1940s specifically, uh, very, very interesting. And they are the first women who actually wrote in Hindi um, and their work has never been translated into, into English. So I am working on that as well. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. And you can find many other interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Sophia Samatar, author of The White Mosque. But before then, Tanvi, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Nicholas.